0: All right, now we're up. You know, um, my father-in-law is a bit of a train nerd. Loves those
1: trains, man. Loves those trains and the train tracks. He would like Plymouth, Michigan, then, because we hate them. We hate those <laughs> trains. They're 25-minute trains, man. <sighs> You're stuck for right. twenty five minutes, uh, and God forbid, you hit them twice because they they kind of zigzag a little through the town. Right, exactly. You know, I, I
0: remember living over there in Royal Oak area. He'd go through. Yeah, he got a couple tracks. You there. know, years ago, had a couple tracks, and so you get stopped by the trains all the time. But he loves just like he used to take the kids around. You know. I don't know if uh, he would always dreamed of being a hobo, or
1: <laughs> <what>? <laughs> is that all, the only thing associated right. with trains? Is it's the only thing I can
0: think of is the the, <laughs> the, the the hobo mafia, you know, riding the rails, you know, uh, keeping keeping this country creative and, and and comical in ways, you
1: know. But but yeah, the uh, hobos aren't just a U.S. thing. Hobos uh, are worldwide. I think as the worldwide international representative of hobos united <laughs> against mankind <laughs> for comedy, I'd be upset.
0: As the chairman of the Rail Riders of America Union. But yeah, you know, nowadays he'll he'll sit there and he'll look at what's happening on the rails. And then if Patty and I are traveling somewhere, you know, he gets on that flight radar and he's watching the plane and seeing where it's going and what it's doing. Cool. If you go, I mean. It's frightening. I, I, I tell you what, the worst thing you can do is if you're going to get on a flight, like knowing that we're coming up on Thanksgiving, right, the busiest travel day of of the of the year coming up. If you Google air flight traffic and go to that flight radar and you see how many goddamn planes are in the air,
1: it is frightening to look at. Yeah, it's a lot of metal flying around, man.
0: Oh, it's unreal. And then, like, knowing that we're in, you know, the, the time of year when, when there's been so many shipwrecks out in the Great Lakes, I just figured, well, there's got to be one industry that's learned <laughs> from the past. And, and I looked up the, the traffic that's out on the Great Lakes I can't believe how many ships are out on the Great Lakes. And then you, like, scan that back and look at the world view. It is unbelievable how many ships, cargo ships, tanker ships, are on the move right now and in the Great
1: The world's a big place, a lot of people. Those ships got to go. They got to keep moving. They can't stop because uh, Gordon Lightfoot told us how <laughs> the, the gales of November <laughs> come stealing, the witch, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that witch has is, is got some targets out in the Great Lakes right now. I mean, you look at looking at it, all these ships that are uh, on the move crossing through Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, Lake Erie, Lake Ontario. Ships crossing through uh, Lake Superior still uh, jammed up in uh, the, the Sault Ste. Marie up in the Sioux Locks there. it's It's wild looking at that especially knowing you know being great Lakes shipwreck divers like ourselves and hearing the stories of all those wild storms that took down ships in november to me it's always i don't know man it always fascinates me like hearing that stuff
1: it's cool stuff it's very interesting i think uh Uh, The modern technology has really helped increase the safety. So, you know, when you read what happened to those ships, how they sank or why they sank, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, they didn't have the ability to to see what was going on anywhere else except where they were, you know, versus now, they can tell what's going on a little, you know, the, the picture's a lot bigger for them, so they can avoid... The crap that they couldn't avoid before they got stuck in it. So that's why you just don't hear about them anymore. You don't hear the ships going down, which is, uh, you know, for you shipwreck divers, for divers, period, or people thinking about getting into diving, the The number of shipwrecks is not increasing. It's it's drastically decreasing, and uh, they won't be around forever. Pretty soon there will be no shipwrecks. Then what? Then what? What's a world with no shipwrecks look like to you, James? It's a terrible. Uh, we're gonna
0: we're going be diving coral reefs, Art- artificial <laughs> reefs,
1: artificial, artificial. wrecks. <laughs> and so instead of uh, them going down accidentally or unplanned, for they'll they'll tow them out and dynamite them. And uh...
0: well, when we look at the Great Lakes, and we we keep coming back to this Great Storm, and you know we could do a November Great Storm episode for. Another decade, (laughs) you know, every year coming back to the great story. There's still stories out there because of so much crazy stuff that occurred and so many wrecks that went down and so many lives that were lost in that one storm back in the early 1900s, which like what you were just saying was right at the, I mean, that's when the, really the, the national weather bureau, like really it just got started right back then. Like it, before that, it, it really didn't exist, you know. And captains were, you know, shaking a paper bag of of chicken wing bones and dropping it on the ground, and you know, to to see whether or not the <laughs> to see whether or not the ship should go out that day or not. You know, they had just a bunch of crazy old wives' tales of.
1: <laughs> this is how conspiracy theories start, James. Somebody on a podcast supposes. <laughs> chicken wing bones
0: red sky at night sailors delight red sky at morning sailor take warning so most of the info from today's show comes from the book november's fury by michael schumacher that we've touched on a little bit in the past before but i specifically want to hit some of the stuff about the good old shipwreck of the Regina, one of Great Lakes divers' most popular shipwrecks in Southern Lake Huron. I mean, it, as far as, like, being an introductory dive, you know, to introduce divers to shipwreck diving, I mean, it, can you think of a more popular wreck out there than uh, the good old Regina?
1: Not really. I, uh, I think back when it was found, when it was discovered there, and how quickly it became the... Uh, most popular target for shipwreck divers back in those days, mid early '80s, something like that, and it's still to this day. So that's 30 years of it being one of the, if not the most popular shipwreck dive for like the Metro Detroit area, especially, right? We're probably the biggest concentration of yeah divers in Michigan, and it's a you know a short little jaunt for us up about two hours up to the port. But yeah, it's it's got to be one of the most popular shipwrecks we have in in the Great Lakes. Good size freighter upside down. It's nice and easy to, you know, swim around the exterior of it. Or if you want to, you can if you got a training and experience and know-how, go inside, penetrate. Penetrate the Regina. There I said it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we might as well get this off of our chest. The <laughs> <laughs> the Regina-Regina debate. Well, there's no debate. I agree. I agree. I always prefer to call it by its proper name, the Regina.
1: Yeah, Well, that that is its proper name. But yeah,
0: it was a big, early turn-of-the-century shipwreck, or ship at the time, named after <laughs> Regina, Saskatchewan. 300, almost... Almost 300 feet, so pretty small in comparison to the, the freighters out there nowadays. But as far as a shipwreck goes, like you said, I mean, it's one that's it's big. It's huge. I mean, I remember going out at my first time when I was a kid back in the 90s, um, and it was like one of the first shipwrecks. So you're like, I mean, you, you've, you've seen a couple of boats at the local quarry, the bus the big old school bus at the local quarry and then getting on that and you're like holy shit this thing's huge but it's still of a size that a recreational diver could circumnavigate on a dive right because it's not that yeah. big if you really wanted to swim all the way down it and all the way back you could on a single tank it's it's 80 feet at the deepest so it's something that you know, advanced recreational divers can do, but like That's you said, the mud though. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're on it in sixty feet of water. You're on that absolutely beautiful, amazing prop. Yeah, that that prop and rudder, uh nameplate back there. I mean, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous sight for for new divers to experience. And like you said, if you've got uh, the training and the talent and the technique and the equipment it's uh it 's a good penetration dive as well but it's it 's not an easy penetration dive i mean that 's a beat up twisted up uh,
1: difficult penetration to do cleanly, like all of them are getting to be you know as they deteriorate and rapidly rust. <laughs> Although, uh, thankfully, the Great Lakes have, you know, they're cold.
0: Yeah, the cold fresh water at least helps preserve yes. them
1: some. More so than if they were in the ocean. Salt water, yeah. Warm salt water.
0: If ever there were a perfect storm on the Great Lakes, it would be the one that pounded the lakes from November 7th through November 10th, 1913, leaving a wake of destruction unlike anything ever seen on fresh water at any point in recorded history. By the time the storm had blown out of the region, 12 boats had sunk. 31 more had been grounded on rocks or beaches, and dozens more were severely damaged. More than 250 men lost their lives. Eight boats with their entire crews were lost in a single day on Lake Huron alone.
1: Son of a bitch.
0: So, I mean, that's what I was just looking you know the the last two weeks here in michigan i've been looking at the the weather that's been occurring and there was just two big storm fronts that came through one of them like a week and a half ago that was like pushing out from the pacific ocean and then like ended up bringing all these storms across the like rocky mountain area and then here like like just hitting michigan And uh, Ohio yesterday and today, that, that, that big cold front coming down from the Arctic pushing down has made for some big, wild, stormy weather out there on the Great Lakes. The lakes are really warm still, so they're saying that you know uh, that that warm Great Lake water, uh, that cold front is making all this wild lake effect snow. So to me, like I, like this time every year, I always you know I always get that like feeling of is there ever gonna be another big storm like that again? And I mean, one of the coolest things you know this time of year is to be able to get over to the coast and see like the that wild surface water activity like beating in on those harbors and at those lighthouses and at the beaches along the the coast of michigan our beautiful beautiful michigan coast like i'm going to be up north thursday for thanksgiving visiting my folks up there and you can bet well i mean one of my favorite sites to do is to get over to that area lake huron where we dive up in that thunder bay area and just get a get another good view of of the water you know
1: Oh, agreed. The lakes offer up some great photography uh, opportunities as well, James. Now that you have a, a digital SLR, you can do some uh, slow shutter speed work. Set that shutter speed. Oh, yeah, long, yeah. Get that get that water crashing across the rocks. In the east coast of Michigan has uh, has some good rocky shoreline. You should uh, you should be able to pull something really cool out of there. Bring a tripod.
0: Interestingly enough. You know that right around this time of the Great Storm of 1913 was when the very first 35-millimeter camera
1: was developed. Really? Wow. Aren't you, Mr. Smarty Pants?
0: <laughs> yeah. And also, so was the number two pencil.
1: <laughs> I thought I was the only one with useless information rattling around up in my noggin. At least that's what I'm told.
0: It was the beginning of automated assembly lines with good old Henry Ford like
1: they, I mean these were like the early early days of America. Thomas Edison was getting big. Uh, right, yeah. Firestone, rubber tires. Yeah.
0: Women were just getting the right to vote and yeah, shortly thereafter the uh the IRS is is beginning and uh we have a federal income tax.
1: It's just for a couple of weeks. It's just to help raise some money. <laughs> yeah. It's temporary, just gonna, people.
0: Just gonna flatten the flatten the, into, <laughs> flatten uh, the, the curve. income curve.
1: <laughs> yes, so they now, told see, us that.
0: Here, here we are, a hundred <laughs> over a hundred years later, we're still paying it out our asses. Schumacher says that the shipbuilding uh, and the Great Lakes shipping advances were moving along at a pretty steady pace, but were primitive in comparison to today. On the Great Lakes, which is, I'm sure, why we, we still see uh, in the late November so many ships still out there on the on the water. Right there, there weren't any computers or GPS systems back then. Uh, there, there wasn't even radar yet. I mean, that was still
1: a long way right. away before they even had radar. Well, everything's changed. Everything's increased in power, increase in. Technology, increasing, uh, you know, the ability to control the ship in a storm. Yeah,
0: it was all f- steam engines, you know, shoveling in coal by hand, basically. They were, they were, they found out how deep the water was by dropping a lead weight over the side of the boat, <laughs> you know, to measure out, yeah. you know, they were, they were navigated by an actual real compass. Yeah. Yeah, wild times. And you know, you when you like, I mean, I love like nerding out and and reading these stories. You know, because you, you you hear these ship captains that are you know one they've got no idea what was happening twelve hours ahead of them. You know, it's just looking out at the water from the dock, and going, eh, I think we can make
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, and I mean just my little experience diving. We've been caught out in fucking horrible, horrible weather. It it changes in a split second almost, and we know what's going on. You know, we have the radar, we have the, uh radio information coming in about the weather, but we've been we've gone down on a wreck and within the 100 Minutes hundred ish minutes on that wreck. weather's gone from you know calm seas, relatively calm, one two footers to four to six footers, and it's tough to get back on the boat it's a It's a job and then that that ride that took you an hour to get to takes about three in the in the big waves It's crazy to really get back, yeah, yeah, when you're going against the wind, when you're going against the waves. It's got to triple the distance, really.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been down on a dive. And, you know, you come back from, you know, barely one footers to five, six footers in in the course of, you know, less than an hour, hour of bottom time, you know. Um, And you listen to some of these stories, you know, of guys back then saying, you know, we went into church. Everything looked great and coming out of church, it was you know a completely different world. Like so in the course of of that church mass, these, these guys in Cleveland, you know, when they're talking. George Plady, who was the master of the Wexford, um up until earlier that year. There's a quote from him in this book where he said that I sat at home in Collingwood and watched the barometer. The arrow dropped until it bent. I never saw it as low in 45 years of sailing, and I knew in my heart that the toll would be bad. And uh, luckily for him, you know, he wasn't on that ship anymore because the Wexford <laughs> is one of the other ones that went down on Lake Huron with, with all hands. Schumacher says that, by all indications, the storm had tormented the upper lakes and was not going to reach Lake Huron and the other lower lakes. This was good news to captains itching to deliver cargo to ports on Lake Michigan or Lake Superior. Waiting for the storm to subside had fouled up shipping schedules and delays and under the best of circumstances irritated skippers who had to defund them to company offices. There was an ever greater sense of urgency now with so many vessels reaching the end of their season. He says, nothing happening on Lake Huron during the early hours of Sunday morning, November 9th, indicated extraordinary weather ahead. At 2 a.m., the Port Huron Weather Bureau station recorded a a barometric pressure of 29.7, though the barometer was dipping. Winds out of the northwest could ripple a flag, but they were little more than a breeze. Captains took this as a good sign, loaded the freighters, and began to leave the harbor. But as we've talked in a couple of those episodes before, like that last one we did, you know, we really talked a lot more about the storm. And right there was those, kind of like what I was just saying was happening last week, Right there was two storm fronts coming, one from the west, one from the north, that were about to, like, collide right up at Lake Superior and then just push on a downward angle across Lake Huron and right smashing into Cleveland, basically. Uh, that nobody really, like, the the captains in Lower Lake Huron really had no idea what was about to happen. Yeah, it's a little stormy up there in Lake Superior, but we'll be fine. It's going to be gone by the time we we
1: get moving north.
0: But interestingly enough, like, The old Regina, that left out of Sarnia.
1: Sarnia, Ontario, for those of you who don't know where Sarnia is. Canada, bitches. But it's, I mean, virtually... Yeah, it's not far from where it went down. (laughs) Not far at
0: all. I I mean, it didn't make it far at all before that storm got so bad. Things were getting so terrible that it collided and was, you know, I mean... Granted that had a lot to do with its sinking was the collision. The sky was just beginning to lighten when a 249-foot Canadian package freighter, the Regina, burdened with cargo in her hold and on her deck, pulled away from the dock in Sarnia, Ontario, a city just south and east across from the St. Clair River from Port Huron, Michigan. The St. Clair forming an international boundary between the United States and Canada ran 40 and a half miles. The river immensely important to Great Lake shipping connected the Lake Huron and Lake St. Clair. From there, it was a short trip down the Detroit river to Lake Erie and old captain Edward McConkey and his crew of 19 had quite a trip ahead. The Regina would be sailing north up Lake Huron before eventually turning East into the Georgian Bay. He mentions here that the Georgian Bay being Nearly like another great lake in and of itself. There's a lot of people, you know, from that part of Canada consider the Georgian Bay not to be just a bay of Lake Huron, but
1: its own great lake. I mean, that's how big the Georgian Bay is. It's pretty big. Pretty goddamn big. Speaking of Georgian Bay. So I was at Eastern Market Sunday. They had this guy who makes paper models of ships. And he had a paper model of the um, what's that fairy that the Chichiman? Remember the oh, Chichiman? Oh, the Chichiman! Over there? Yeah, 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 yeah. The Chichiman. He had these little paper models that you can buy. You know, assemble them yourself. Uh, but he had the Chichiman there. He does have the the Regina. Speaking of uh, the Regina, he does have the Regina as a paper model. I've got his website too. Check it out. It's pretty cool.
0: Let's uh, throw it
1: out there to the people. Okay, I will. I'll throw it you out got, to those you got, goddamn people. You got his website? The uh, website is com. That's all one word, com. And uh, Bob May is the owner and designer, and he makes uh, Great Lake Freighter paper model kits. Check it out. Hey, everybody, go check out that website. It was the guy was very knowledgeable he lives on the uh one of the great lakes, I don't remember which one, but he's you know he follows the the freighters, so he knows all the routes and the schedules and, oh yeah, yeah, uh he knows about a bunch of the sinkings from of course this great storm
0: yeah that's a those are cool people to talk to i mean that's yeah that's always a fun conversation over a couple of pints you know at the little locals seaside pub talking to those guys you know the the guys who sit there and you know are lake huron natives you know who who look at the great lakes you know of well my lake's way bigger than you chicago boys and your little little lake (laughs) michigan and you know and then uh but compared to lake superior you know it's it's you know that's the biggest but still i mean Lake Huron i mean you 're looking at a lake that is over two hundred miles long and nearly two hundred miles wide, two hundred miles wide i mean I mean like like a lake that 's
1: five miles wide yeah I mean a lake that 's five miles wide is a big ass lake a, a bow in geographical terms a bow, a b a l the big ass lake.
0: Big ass lake.
1: She's a big Bal, ass lake. We're right. going to
0: start calling. We're going to start calling it Bal Huron from now on. Yeah. So they're talking about how old Captain McConkie, you know, knew that there was a big storm up on Lake Superior. Uh, but when they were leaving, you know, he just he had the feeling that hey, we're we're going to beat it. We're going to miss it. Uh yeah. The barometer was falling the weather was starting to look bad but nothing like what they were reporting up on Lake Superior so he's figuring things are going to get broken up you know as that storm passes Lake Superior and he's going to have smooth sailing seas in just a couple of hours. Now those of us that have dove on this shipwreck know that something interesting about The old Regina that that makes her one of the most popular shipwrecks is she's got quite the debris field of just all kinds of old stuff that you, you come across laying in the mud, laying in the sand. And then as as the weather changes from year to year to year. And the sands move, and the the currents move that that bottom a little bit. It's a little bit of a different dive from year to year. And sometimes you don't see much. Sometimes you see a lot more. Sometimes you see you know crates of catch old school glass ketchup bottles. And remember last year we found some of that really cool old old pottery.
1: Yeah. The debris field in and of itself is a good little dive. I shouldn't say little. It's a good dive. You could spend a couple of dives just playing around in, in the debris field. And you, you may find some old dive gear. Not even old, but you may find some dive gear because people, they drop shit all the time off their dive boats. And that is a heavily dived target right there.
0: Yes. So if, if, you, need, uh, if you need to get yourself a... a- GoPro? <laughs> a, a lightly used GoPro or dive light or uh, dive a couple, pounds, yeah. a, a couple fin, pounds of weight. One fin. <laughs> <laughs> one, if you, yeah, if you yes. need of one fin, you always head out to the old Regina dive site and see what you can come come up with. The Regina was valued for the variety of her cargo, which she would drop off. At out-of-the-way destinations, such as logging towns not serviced by the railroad. This trip was especially important. This was the Regina's last scheduled delivery of the season, and she was bringing provisions for the winter months ahead. The Regina would be visiting 10 ports around the Georgian Bay, dropping off eight railroad cars worth of canned goods, Such essentials as razors and matches, liquor, even champagne for a New Year's Eve party. 140 tons of baled hay also found its way on board. And as the final touch, large sewer and gas pipes were stacked and secured on the boat's deck. Now, ship spotter Denny Lynn, for one, looked to at the pipe rising over the Regina's rails. Lynn's business, the Lynn Marine Reporting Company, watched boats leaving and entering the St. Clair River. Lynn would note the time and arrival or departure and report it to the vessel's company. It was an inexpensive way for shipping companies to keep track of their vessels. And in Lynn's view... The Regina had taken on more than she should have. If she was top heavy, there was no telling what might happen if she encountered heavy seas and started to roll. And quote, I was afraid there would be trouble. He confessed to a reporter from the Port Huron Times Herald. I don't believe it is intended that boats of that
1: description should be loaded in that manner. Hmm. Interesting. I hadn't heard this angle before.
0: Yeah, kind of uh, fun stuff when you, like, look back. It it seems like so many of these shipwreck stories, like, in these great storms like this, it was, I told you so. You know, there's there's always... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, when you look back, you know, post this storm there was so much arguing over who's to blame like the the you know the shipping companies wanted to blame the the weather bureau right the people wanted to blame the the owners of the vessels for for being greedy and wanting to run so late and there was just a, a bunch of fighting but at the end of the day it, it would having that hindsight to look back you know nowadays we would look and go wow like who in their right mind but a difficult call to make in the moment right
1: Yeah, especially when there's so much money on the line. And when people say money, they might have this little evil greed thing, too. But also remember, it's the sailors' families. Uh, It's the people uh, of where they're going to drop off all this cargo as well. They need that stuff to survive through the winter. So a lot of responsibility in that decision.
0: So, yeah. So the captain set sail out of Sarnia, started cruising north up Lake Huron, and... The seas became angry, my friend, and the weather started to change. (laughs) Schumacher says that by early Sunday afternoon, captains of boats heading up Lake Huron knew that they had a decision to make. The ferocity of the storm, unparalleled in their experiences, showed no hint of reprieve. If not for the danger they presented, the waves' gigantic height would have been awe inspiring. If you tried to describe them to those who had never sailed, they might not have even believed you. The other components of the storm, like the wind, the ice, the snow, he says we're equally incredible. Blizzard snow, relentlessly driven by wind, topping fifty, sixty, seventy miles per hour, was flying
1: horizontally. It's kind of like when we did that dive on the Kuka. Oh, that, and the
0: the winter one, like five years ago. Yeah, the very, the first one we
1: did. Yeah, yeah, raging raging wind and snow, blizzard, raging wind. You could not see the the shore or the dive site from either vantage point. Have you been uh, seeing any of uh, Becky's stuff there from... Oh, yeah, incredible. Amazing. Yeah, what an adventure. Yeah, just, just Holy a... shit. Just amazing views, yeah, yeah.
0: So violent a storm is not usually so prolonged, they say. It was... Cyclonic in character, with an average velocity of sixty miles an hour, accompanied by frequent spurts in which the wind reached a maximum of seventy nine miles an hour, they say that this condition continued well over twelve hours, whipping up tremendous seas, such probably have never been encountered on the lakes ever before. So old Captain McConkey was cruising up Lake Huron. And started getting the shit beat out of him and finally decided to turn and head back down and take some shelter back in the St. Clair River. And he mentions in this book that, you know, this Scottish built ship was designed to take the the wave activity of the Atlantic, not not the Great Lakes. Right? Which we know are much more devastating just because of the intensity and the impact. And when that wind changed on the old travels of the Regina, it just started beating the hell out of her. And so top-heavy loaded this ship was, uh, I, I guess this, this became a very frightening moment. But the old Captain McConkie got her turned around and got her cruising back southbound to try to take some refuge.
1: You said it's. A, you mentioned it was a Scottish-built ship, but it was built in. Well, it was named after. Uh, I thought where it was built, which is Saskatchewan, Canada. Right, Regina, Regina.
0: Yes, it was a. Uh, it was a Scottish uh, shipbuilder. Oh, was he? Uh, what was his name? Macmillan and Sons. Welcome to all things Scottish. Our slogan is: If it's no Scottish, it's crap. Turning around in these conditions and inviting any substantial time in a trough was going to be challenging enough. The turn required a concise, careful communication between the captain, the wheelsman, and the chief engineer. McConkey issued his orders, and the Regina began the maneuver. The boat undoubtedly took a tremendous battering in the minutes that it took to turn, but it was successful. and the Regina started back down the lake... It would be rough sailing in the hours ahead, but McConkie's judgment, it beat the alternative. And as we know, the old Regina never made it to the St. Clair River.
1: Missed it by that much. He says here that
0: they were sailing blind for hours. The men in the wheelhouse were unable to see through the snow and ice that was caked on the windows. They say that her pitching in the shallower water actually led her to touching the bottom several times, tearing a hole in the hull near the front cargo hold. And efforts to save her were doomed from the beginning. They tried pumping out the water, couldn't do it. Shoreline was nowhere to be seen. And Captain McConkey ordered an anchor to be dropped, and the engine shut down. And he jammed on the pilot house whistle and told his crew to abandon ship. And Schumacher says here that He probably knew all along that all of these actions were futile. If anyone on shore could even hear his distress signal, and it turned out that they did, there was utterly no possibility of a rescue boat even being able to set out in their direction. So launching the lifeboats was destined for failure for the same reason. No small vessel was going to stay afloat in the wind and the seas on Lake Huron that night. Still, there was little else that
1: anyone could do yeah that's kind of got to be a, a sinking feeling you know <laughs> it's like oh we got hold of them, you yeah. guys we got radio contact and they say uh well sorry guys <laughs> nobody can get out to help you so it looks like you're on your own
0: fellas it's been good to know you if you know what i mean
1: <laughs> fellas, it's been good to know you
0: at least one lifeboat was successfully launched schumacher says That much was evident when the empty boat washed ashore, along with most of uh, the Regina's crew, on Tuesday. Lowering the boats to the water in the heavy seas, fighting a wind that threatened to bash the boats against the side of the Regina, had to have been an almost impossible task. But somehow, the lifeboats made it to the water, the men with little more than life jackets and prayers disappeared into the blizzard in the night. McConkie stayed with the Regina. He took the stairs from the pilot house to his quarters where he would at least be able to die away from the bitter cold and the intense, maddening shrieks of the storm. It was not warm or quiet by any means, but it was the best McConkey was going to get. His life was going to end at thirty four years, and he would be leaving behind his wife, Amanda, and two daughters. Amy and Eileen, seven and two years old, respectively. This is an interesting perspective that I really like out of this book is is when old Michael Schumacher tries to get into the minds of these sailors out on the water. He says, what races through the mind when you realize that death is a nearby reality? When you know without the slightest doubt that your life is about to end, how does one accept this? You are still breathing. Your heart is still beating. Sailors, remembering the time they spent in icy water after a shipwreck, when rescue seemed so far away, have spoken of the temptation to end the suffering by taking a large gulp of water. At least the end would come quickly. But what if you're the captain, following the old tradition of going down with the boat, You are still on the boat. You are still relatively dry. But if you're Edward McConkie aboard the Regina, alone in your quarters while the water fills the boat, bringing it lower to the water with each passing minute, how do you put all of this to rest? Do you wonder how it feels to drown? Or do you keep your thoughts on the people you love and will never see again? He mentions here, he says, or if, You're Jimmy Owen of the Henry B. Smith. Do you die angry at yourself for heading out against your better judgment at the company for pushing you to leave? Or maybe you think all these things. Or if you're Chris Keenan aboard the Plymouth and the barge is breaking apart around you, you might leave a farewell note expressing anger at being abandoned while declaring love for those you are leaving behind. But the old uh, sinking of the Regina had collapsed the deckhouses, inverted her hull, and freed McConkie from his quarters. And his body was recovered far away from the wreckage in August of 1914. He was the last one aboard the Regina. He was also the last one of the boat's crew that was recovered.
1: Dang. Yeah, that's always got to be a, a question you ask yourself whenever you hear of any disaster like this. Or even like, uh, you know, I always think of like the divers who die in uh, the caves, you know, get lost in a cave diving accident or something oh, like that effect. Oh, yeah, yeah. What is going on in your mind in those last minutes? It's very torturous in a way because... You have to adopt uh, their viewpoint, which puts you into this, like, oh, shit. Right. It's either,
0: Coming like, back. do you sit there and panic and flail uh, or do you, like, do you try to, like, stay calm and try to work your way out or you just sit back and wait for the uh, peacefully try to make terms with your life and, and, and go out peacefully? I mean, that's a horrific thing to yeah. think of, you know?
1: It's a tough time to, to be making terms with your life because you, you're in a dire circumstance. It's not your mind operating on a level sane playing field. It's like full panic mode, full oh shit mode. That's why it's good to, to ponder these questions before it happens. Then maybe you can go out looking cool. This is rule 6.5. You forget about this one. You always want to look cool while you're diving. Rule 6.5, when they find your body, they don't want to see your fingers have clawed away at the rock or you're in full panic mode with that terrible, terrifying face of death frozen on your head. Yeah, it's a tough way to go, man. I'm I'm sure you, if it happens to you, you're going to have your hair nicely slicked back. It's going to be the Uh, last thing I do. Big smile. It's (laughs) (laughs) going
0: to be the last thing I do. I'm I'm going (laughs) to take (laughs) a a handful of pomade, pull that comb out of my back pocket. (laughs) Pull my hair up in a nice slicked back pompadour. Put on my dancing <laughs> shoes. Smile
1: on your face.
0: Now, this is a, this is a good one. You're going to like this. On November 22nd, uh, that captain that they were just talking about that left the note, uh, uh, Captain Keenan, on the ship of the Plymouth, a message in a bottle washed ashore. and He wrote out a letter saying, Dear wife and children. We were left up here in Lake Michigan by McKinnon, captain of the James H. Martin at anchor. He went away and never said goodbye or anything to us. Lost one man yesterday. We have been out in the storm for forty hours. Goodbye, dear ones. I might see you in heaven. Pray for me, Chris K. P.S. He left a P.S. He left a P.S. <laughs> P.S. <laughs> if that wasn't if that wasn't powerful enough and. And now the the guilt is is running through him. He leaves a postscript. P.S. I felt so bad. I had another man write for me. Goodbye
1: forever. Oh my god. He's, he's,
0: he's <laughs> got to get that off, He's got to get that last thing off of his conscience before he uh, before he finally goes and plucks that mm. cork into the bottle. Wow! Ain't ain't that a son of a bitch? Yeah. So there was a bit of a mystery around. The sinking of the Regina, the the wreck of the Charles S. Price as well. Um, there was issue, you know, with the the Wexford in there as well. Right, where, where bodies were just like washing up on shore, right? And then there was a mystery, particularly around the Regina, the Regina, and the Price. Because days later they found that hull floating on the surface and they found bodies floating with Regina life vests on them. So they assumed for a long time that that was the Regina until they later ended up sending a commercial diver down to determine exactly what was going on. So there was a guy by the name of Milton Smith who was the assistant engineer on the Charles S. Price. Who had quit right before this journey. And they asked him to come down to start helping to identify some of the bodies that were washing up.
1: That's got to be a tough job. Yeah. If you like your coworkers, it's a tough job. Yeah, right. If you hated your coworkers, it's a dream job. (laughs) He said that 10 bodies
0: Seven wearing life jackets from the Regina were found on the beach just north of Port Franks, Ontario. A few miles farther north, seven bodies from the Price were discovered. The remains were taken to Thedford and laid out on the floor in the back of an old furniture store. Relatives and friends of sailors on the boats visited the makeshift morgue, all braced to accept the possibility that a loved one might be there. When they say that old Milton Smith arrived, he was unable to identify all of those believed to have been from the price. The freighter officially listed a crew of 28, and of that roster of officers and crewmen, there were bound to be last-minute sign-ons, including Smith's own replacement, whom Smith did not know. And as a rule, I guess, these lists were very untrustworthy. New hires were left off, sailors long gone, were included, and guests, the spouses and friends of captain and crew on board for a single trip were never written down.
1: So there's a lot more dead people than we we really know of, undocumented.
0: Yeah, yeah. He says that Smith moved from body to body, anticipating the awful truth whenever the coroner pulled back a sheet Smith recognized one of his old friends from the price, Herbert Jones, the boat's cook. Jones was still wearing his white uniform and apron, a surefire indication by Smith's estimation that the price had gone down with little or no warning. According to Smith, Jones always changed out of his uniform immediately after finishing his shift. He says, evidently, Jones did not have any time for himself, he told reporters. But at the moment that something happened to the boat, he went directly to his wife's assistance. That proves to me that something of a sudden nature happened to the Price. Jones's wife was not among the recovered bodies. Hmm. Smith also identified Wilson McInnes, the Price's Canadian wheelsman, and Chris Faulkner, the fireman from New York City. The bodies were badly bruised and covered with sand, and their faces had to be washed before Smith could even identify them. John Groundwater, Smith recognized his former chief engineer and boss as soon as he saw him. He didn't, he didn't appear to have suffered. He looked as natural as though he were sleeping, Smith later uh, described. It just seemed as though I ought to speak to the man. He says, that's big, good-natured John, Smith told the coroner. Oh, how the boys all liked him. Are you sure, said the coroner. As sure as I know, my own name is Smith, he said. Well, the coroner replied, this man had one of the Regina's life preservers wrapped around his body. How could he be from the price if he's got a Regina <laughs> life preserver on? Yes, and I, the reporters really, he says in here, like really jumped on this story and really played with it for a while. And it became a great mystery over there in that area of, uh, of that godrich uh, uh, area of Ontario. He says um, that Smith had his own theory about what sank the price. He says, based on what he was told about how and where the bodies washed up, the cook still wearing his uniform and groundwaters being found in a Regina life preserver, Smith concluded that the price in the Regina had collided The boats would have sunk very quickly in the storm, and the crews from both vessels would have been in the water at the same time. The crews had to look after their own safety at once, Smith proposed. And the press embraced this theory. It was logical, and in the absence of survivors, or evidence provided by one of the boats, for that matter, Smith's thoughts on how the man would be wearing another boat's life preserver was the best explanation they were likely to get. Schumacher tells us that after nearly a week of intense speculation and debate, the identity of the overturned boat on Lake Huron was finally revealed on the morning of September 15th when William H. Baker, one of the premier divers on the great lakes visited the wreck and made a positive ID collecting a $100 reward for his efforts. He says, uh, Baker dropped into the murky water shortly after six o'clock visibility in the cold murky water was extremely limited about the length of Baker's arm. And the diver became disoriented as he groped his way along the wreckage and tried to estimate how far he would have to drop before he came to the area of the hull with the upside-down lettering revealing the boat's identity. And he eventually found it. But the visibility was so poor that he had to slowly spell out the vessel's name letter by letter. It was, as so many suspected, the Charles S. Price. If any members of her crew were still on board, they would be absolutely no chance of finding anyone still alive, even with the trapped air pockets keeping the price still buoyant. Baker says, as I started down, I felt her sides all the way down for 20 feet. Then I lost it again, but I kept going down, expecting to run into it. When I discovered what I was too far down, I started to come up again and found the wreck again coming up. And I ran into a pipe rail around her Texas work. I hung on there until I found out where I was at. Then I went down the pipe rail until I ran into the bulwarks of the wreck. The bulwarks were painted white. There was a round railing on the edge of the bulwarks. And I went around that railing until I ran across her name. There I stopped and took my time. And I read her name twice. And the letters spelled out for me, Charles S. Price. Her full name is there. I read the name over twice to be absolutely positive. The name is painted in black letters on white bulwarks.
1: He, he should have just taken a GoPro. He could have just filmed it and showed everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a different uh, different time, uh, the, the, the
1: cameras yeah. back then. Not to mention the visibility in the Great Lakes was spectacularly bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially post storm. Floating yeah. and, and just rough, beat up water, and uh, as we know now, you know the, the the price would later lose that buoyancy of the trapped air and find its way, you know, not too far away from, you know, where the Regina is, and you know the, we, there's that the big gash in the side of the Regina, of of the collision. Interesting story, though, man.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's a few of those that came out of that storm.
0: So, at the Knox Presbyterian Church over in Godrich, they had a you know big big service on the sixteenth of November and uh had a big funeral. He says here that the afternoon service drew an estimated fourteen hundred people who spilled out of the pews and down the aisles of the church. A choir of nearly 100, accompanied by organ, solemnly marched in procession to their places. And in his sermon, Reverend J.B. Forthingham reflected on the long-standing belief that, as the song went, God moves in mysterious ways. We believe in a world of order, he preached, but when we see forces of nature which to the observing eye seem to be so uncontrollable. We are, for a time, apt to cry. Where is the God who rules? Schumacher says that after the service, five horse-drawn hearses, carrying the remains of the unknown sailors, led by the 33rd Regiment Band, playing Dead March and Saul, moved in a procession of townspeople through Godrich, People lined the streets, paying silent respect to the men they never knew. Five fresh graves awaited them at the cemetery, and after the sailors were laid to rest, five wooden crosses bearing the names of their vessels marked their final resting place. In time, the crosses would be replaced and consolidating into a large marble marker bearing the word sailors crazy story eh i mean it's 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 one thing to go out and dive these shipwrecks but i mean i always love coming back to to hearing these tales i think they're so exciting and the the stuff of feature films and fantastic books like michael schumacher's book here november's fury that does such a great job detailing the deadly great lakes hurricane of 1913 so for those of you that have dove some of these great lakes shipwrecks i hope this brings a little bit of drama and character to some of these dives you've done those of you out there that have never dove the great lakes i hope this gives you some some curiosity to to get up here and visit us enjoy an old jamesian older brando for a little dive out on the great lakes one of these days come up and see us and uh, the regina is one that Again, I mean, I like doing this because it's one that anybody out there can do. It's it's a wreck for virtually any level of of diver who's you know a, a competent diver and can handle some relatively chilly water. But you know, even in the summertime, the the surface water gets pretty warm. It cools down through some thermoclines if you get near the bottom. But it's it's a doable dive for almost anybody. So there you go. Hopefully, you guys will join us out there one of these days and. Hopefully you'll join us next week for another exciting episode of the Great Dive Podcast. Brando,
1: should we, Jamesy,
0: sign these logbooks? Should we put a little message in a bottle, so to say?
1: Yeah, let let us shall. Dear listeners
0: of the Great Dive Podcast, they left us alone. On this ship sinking that I stand in this wheelhouse going down with pride. But I send a message out to my dearest lovely wife. Remember me always. Your husband, old Jamesy. P.S. I was shitting my pants and pissing myself, so I had to have somebody else write this.
1: You have to lose control of your bodily functions to, to really send the message home. <laughs> I,
0: was, I was sitting in the fetal position
1: I cried under my bed. I had to have someone else write this. Hey, mommy, mommy. Well, Jamesy, this dive was not a bad little dive, but you are much like the, the Gales of November in the sense that you seem to turn minutes into hours here at the Great Dive Podcast. Nice, nice storytelling, old Jamesy.
0: It's my specialty,
1: turning minutes into hours. Turning minutes into hours. <laughs> I tried to make it a compliment, but now I think about it, as far as <laughs> spending time with someone, it could be could be taken the other way. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. Safe diving, folks.